We've been preaching the concept of um, the sufficiency and the efficiency of Scriptures, the sufficiency of Scriptures and the infallibility of Scriptures, and that we have to trust the Word of God for what it is, the Word of God, the will of God, none other, nothing outside of it, but this is it, the canon of Scriptures that we hold in our hands. Somebody said, well, I also have to trust beyond just the sufficiency of Scriptures, I also have to trust in the sufficiency of the Holy Ghost. Well, that sounds nice and pious. That was really cute, wasn't it? Somehow divorcing the Word of God from the very Spirit of God Himself, when in fact it was the Spirit of God that spoke the Word of God. Amen? So you cannot say that the Spirit of God means or says or leads us in any other way than the Holy Scriptures do. The Holy Scriptures is what the Holy Spirit is telling us. So let's read together today, starting verse 12. It says, And after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And within the temple grounds, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and on top of that, the money changers seated at the tables. And he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple area. Read that again. And he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He was throwing furniture around. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Stop it. His disciples remembered that it was written in the book of in Psalms, Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word today. We look to your word for guidance. We look to your word for truth. We look to your word to know you more. When we know you better, we trust you. And since we trust you, we have faith in all that you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we talked about the very first miracle that Jesus performed in the beginning of his ministry, which was turning water into wine at that wonderful wedding feast. Interesting how Jesus' ministry on earth starts with a wedding and then ends in heaven with a wedding. And how Jesus just absolutely preached the gospel through that very first miracle that He performed <clears throat> at the wedding feast. But in our context today, we see Jesus performing a miracle even though it didn't seem like a miracle. Trust me, this is a miracle. This is a divine miracle. Now we see that two times Jesus cleanses the temple. I've never read it that way, but this happened two times. Remember, He just started His ministry. He just turned water into wine, and then a few days later, him and his mom, his brothers that came from his mom, which means she's not a perpetual virgin, his family and those five disciples that used to follow John the Baptist who now started following him, John the Baptist told them to, he came with a small group of people into Jerusalem 
to celebrate the Passover feast. This is in the very beginning of his two-year ministry. But then, remember, that when he came into Jerusalem the last time, this is on Palm Sunday, and everybody was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they had palm leaves and everything, and they, he came in to Jerusalem. Again, he cleanses the temple, meaning he chases out all the evil and the wickedness that people have brought into the temple. That was the second time, because then he gets crucified. But here in John, John is the only one who tells us about the first time he cleanses the temple. So there are two cleansings that happen here, and we have to, it's kind of important to understand. So John's the only one that tells us about the first time that Jesus came and cleansed the temple. And then the other synoptic gospels later on tells us about the second time that Jesus comes to cleanse the temple, right before His crucifixion. Now, our first event in heaven is going to be wonderful. How many of you know what happens the very, time, the very moment we enter into heaven? One of the first events that happen will be a wedding feast. Wedding feast called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. The Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And we will be the bride. Jesus will be the groom. Now, this is all played out uh, according to the Jewish custom of marriage. What usually happens is the parents come together and they basically come into a covenant agreement that the two kids, the boy and the girl, who are going to be the, the bridegroom and the bride, they're going to get married. <clears throat> At this point, it is the bridegroom that brings the dowry. The bridegroom brings the dowry, right? That's something extremely valuable. And he brings it to the bride's parents. And then, for a whole year, this groom prepares for this wedding feast. For a whole year, right? And so, he's preparing a house. He's getting money together because he has to pay for this whole feast that's going to happen. And so, the dowry, after the dowry comes the whole year of preparation. And then, one night, of course, the bride knows about this. One night, the groom and all of his friends, they will take torchlights and whatever, and at midnight, they will, he will come down the streets. They will march down the streets all the way to her house, and then he will receive her to himself. And then her and her, those ladies who are waiting on her, they together will come, and this is, don't forget, the virgin, the stories of the foolish virgins, okay? He comes in the middle of the night with all of his friends. He receives her to himself and he takes her to his place. And right here is the beginning of this wedding feast that lasts for days, sometimes weeks. But he pays it all. Now remember, he in the beginning, a year ago, he paid the dowry too. In our case, on the cross. And then... Later on, he comes back to take her to himself in our vernacular, the rapture. And he takes her and he brings her all the way to his house where we will start with this wonderful marriage supper of the Lamb. And everything is paid for. Amen. All that happened was you got chosen to be married to him. And so it's a wonderful story how this happens. The very first thing in heaven that 
takes place is we participate in our own wedding where we are the bride and Jesus is the groom. And just like His first miracle, turning water into wine at the wedding feast, was a very dramatic display of this future event, that's why He turned water into wine. Not because His mom asked Him, but because He was preaching the gospel. And in the same way, the second miracle of cleansing the temple that we're talking about today is also a dramatic display of future events. Future events where judgment will first come to the house of the Lord, the church, and then Jesus Christ will bring ultimate judgment to the world that will be completely irreversible. Judgment will come. This is what he's preaching as he walks into the temple, as we just read, and he drives everyone out. He is being prophetic. In other words, these two cleansings of the temples are previews of a future judgment taking place. Now, today I just wanted to really give you a lot of background as to this portion because it's so interesting how this played out and why this is a miracle. But in Jesus' time, the population of the city of Jerusalem was approximately 200,000 people. 200,000 people. But during the Passover feast, this is when everybody came to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast, the number of people in the city would exceed one million. As a matter of fact, Josephus, an ancient historian, wrote that there was usually, um, uh, he said there was usually actually over 2 million, 2.7 million. And the way he got there was, he said that there was 250,000 animals sacrificed, 250,000 animals sacrificed in Jerusalem in that week. And he times every one of those animals uh, sacrificed per family, which equals about 10 people, 200,000 times 10, is how he got to his number, 250,000 times 10. I don't know if that is completely accurate. It's possible it's within that region, but you can imagine there were many people in Jerusalem for the Passover. So, um, you know, think about what that city looked like during this Passover week. I mean, every single room would have been booked out. There was definitely no room in the inn at that point. (laughs) You can imagine what the streets looked like. Packed with people. Shoulder to shoulder. It's like Black Friday at Woodfield Mall. Before Amazon. (laughs) And all of this was taking place so that people could attend the ceremonies that happened where? Right here in the heart of the city called the temple. The temple. This was the second temple. Uh, It was not the original one that that, that Solomon built. It was the second one. And so they all gathered because of this specific place. Now, this place, this temple, was situated right where what we call today Temple Mount in Jerusalem. When you look at a picture of Jerusalem, you'll see Temple Mount. Right next to it, there's the Wailing Wall. The Jews come to the Wailing Wall on the other side. It's no longer Hebrew. But it's uh, situated right there on the Temple Mount. And this area of the temple at the time covered 35 acres approximately. So it was pretty large, but it accommodated a very large group of people. So you can imagine. And um, in this temple, there were three different sections or three different areas that were sectioned off around the sanctuary, allowing certain people access to those three different areas. So think of it this way. In the middle, there's this temple. 
where today we have the Temple Mount. And then in an area around it, the first section, uh, we're permitted only Hebrew men. Well, let me, let me start. In the temple itself, the sanctuary itself, only priests were allowed. Then the area right next to it, which is the first courtyard or the first court closest to the temple, Israelite men could enter. Then you had the second uh, area, or you might say the second um, courtyard, where Israelite men and women were permitted to enter. And then beyond that, you had the third um, area, and in the third area, what they had is they called it the court of the Gentiles, and this is where the Gentiles who wanted to worship or participate in temple worship would arrive. Now, just imagine this massive area of people all attempting to make their way through to these three different areas within the temple. Also, consider the fact that there were only a few acres per area, but there were basically two million people approximately. Now, especially this third area had to have been very, very densely populated because this was called the Gentile court, and in the Gentile court wasn't just the Gentiles, but also Israeli men and Israeli women. And on top of that, this is where they brought all those animals that were going to be slaughtered and sacrificed. So that area right there had to have been stinky, dirty, very packed, sweaty, and gross, but packed out with people. It had to have been a madhouse in that specific area, wasn't it? Now, the people who were buying and selling at the time, used to do their business outside of this third area, this Gentile court. It used to be way outside of it, but Annas, the high priest at the time of Jesus, had those vendors move their business into that third area, the Gentile court. And he allowed them to start doing business in that third area, buying and selling oxen, sheep, and doves, this may have been because the high priest, Annas, and his family uh, were benefiting tremendously from those who were buying and selling. They took a portion of all the sales. So temple worship became uh, such a lucrative proposition that uh, this temple, this third portion of the temple, was actually known as the bazaar of, of Annas. He actually turned that third area into what we would know as a mall today. Now, you can imagine in this very busy crowded area, there were people selling oxen, sheep, and of course doves for those who were poor. The poor people were buying and selling doves or buying doves for their sacrifice. And the reason they were selling animals there were because people would have to travel very far for this feast every year. Imagine walking 50 miles with your ox. So it became very expensive, tedious, labor, cumbersome. What they would do is they would leave their animals there and they would come to the temple and they would enter this court and they would go and purchase an animal right there. Well, the second reason why they would prefer to purchase an animal right there is because when they would come with their sheep, 50 miles, 75 miles, once a year to come and bring their sacrifice, they would show up at the temple with their sheep and those who were, who, who were um, monitoring and evaluating and judging your offering might just go like, nope, not good enough, sorry, can't use it as an offering. But what you can do is you can buy a good sheep from me and use this one, or an oxen, or a dove. And so this is how they exploited the people for money. 
So it didn't matter really at times how perfect your offering was or how almost perfect it was. They just wouldn't accept it because they needed to make the sale. Now on top of the selling of the animals that happened in this third segment of the, of the, court, the third courtyard around the temple was that um, people, everybody, had to pay what was called a temple tax. And that is where these money changers came in. These are the tables that Jesus overturned and the furniture that he threw around was these money changers. Putting the tables out right around the oxen and the sale of the sheep and the doves. And the money changers were there to convert the Roman currency into what was acceptable for the temple. Because pagan mottos on the Roman money made it unacceptable for temple use. So the temple... The priesthood would not accept the money because it had some kind of statement on the Roman coin. But all we accept is we accept Jewish currency only, Hebrew currency, Israeli currency. So they had to go to the money changers. They had to change the Roman coins at a very, very high exchange rate. And here's the second way people were um, being ripped off, basically. They were exploited. <clears throat> now you can imagine so much commotion happening in that portion or that third area. They needed what was called crowd control or they call it the temple police basically. And the temple police were responsible for the crowd control. And of course they would have to deal with disruptions very often and incidents like, hey, that was my sheep. No, it's my sheep. No, give it to me. Hey, you killed my dove. <laughs> um, and so fights would break out, and this was actually pretty common, and the temple police would take care of that. Now, there's a book named Jews at the Time of Jesus, Jews at the Time of Jesus, by Stephen M. Wyland, W-Y-L-E-N, where he explores the history of the Jews and this second temple experience. And in this book, he mentions that incident where uh, these incidents were common, that people would, of course, step over the line and the police would have to step in. But there was one actual event, Wyland writes about, where the Jews basically protested against a particular high priest that they didn't like at all. Because this high priest obviously was robbing them in, in daylight. I mean, it was a daylight robbery that was going on there. And this priest was benefiting and benefiting and benefiting so much from all of these sales once a year, him and his family. They couldn't stand this priest. So what they did was they started throwing food at this priest in protest. And as they were hurling lemons and fruits at him, he, of course, called in his detail, part of the police of the temple, and according to what is written in history, the high priest's private detail went out there into the crowd and slaughtered thousands of these people who were protesting this priest. Slaughtered them. For what? for throwing food at him. <laughs> now consider the fact that Jesus did much, much worse things than just that. He attacked their credibility from top to bottom. He whipped, as far as we know, possibly animals. We don't know about people. We don't know about anybody that got hurt. So he judged them completely and chased them out. So let's put Jesus in context here. 
Now imagine this little boy Jesus, he grows up. Because at this point, he's already 30. So for 30 years, annually, they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. This was not new to him. He was very aware of the temple and of all of the dealings, and they'd been exploited. I'm, I'm sure his mom, Mary, and, his, and Joseph, his stepdad, were being exploited here after here. Everybody hated what was going on. And here he is at the age of 30. All things have changed. And he's about to set something straight. So he was very familiar with the area, with the environment, with the police, with the detail, with the high priest. In his first year of ministry, he displays God's fury against an abusive and false religious system. He is here to reflect to us God. And consider what was going on in the minds of the handful of disciples that he had at the time. They've only been following him for a few days. They saw him turn water into wine. And in their minds, <clears throat> they believed that the Messiah was coming to attack their enemies. The Messiah was coming to fight the enemies of the Jews. But here they staring at him, looking at him, attacking the Jews. What is going on? <laughs> we don't get our Messiah. <laughs> Imagine with me for a minute, thousands of people milling around, buying and selling, animals everywhere. Jesus, who is basically unknown at this time. Nobody knew him. He was a young 30-year-old man, Hebrew-looking, unknown to everybody. He makes this little whip, probably with some of the leather lying around on the ground that he just found, or rope that he found. He makes this little whip. Then Jesus performs a miracle with this whip, <laughs> which happens right here with these words, John 12, 15. And he drove them all out of the temple area. Not just them, but the sheep and the oxen. He drove them all out with this little whip of these. I mean, not long before that, thousands were slaughtered for, 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 for doing something like this, or not as bad. It's an amazing thing. It's an un unbelievable. All the people who traveled for days and days and days to get to this temple somehow just obey this unknown man named Jesus flinging around his whip. They just picked up and they ran out. Like, how does this happen? All those businessmen, for some odd reason, just took up what they could and left. Because this guy said they must. There were always arguments in the temple. There were always fights in the temple. But somehow, when Jesus took that little whip of ease, everybody was like, I'm out. That's the miracle. Why don't you go to the mall and try that out? <laughs> out! Everybody, out! <laughs> Guess what will happen? Hey! <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing. Everybody grab their phones. It's like, look what I'm looking at. I'm, I'm live. I'm seeing this live. <laughs> I mean, police. I don't know about the mole cops, but somebody will tackle that guy, wouldn't they? But here we have all those people who traveled so far. They're done. They're out. All the businessmen, they're out. The temple police, they stood back. They did nothing. Why? 
The sheep and the oxen, all the animals taken out. That's a big deal. Grew up on a farm. I know what it's like to try and get an ox to follow you. <laughs> this guy's angry. Let's go. <laughs> it says, and he drove them all out. One thirty-year-old man, unknown, drove them all out. Everybody seems to obey this unknown man with his self-made whip. The merchants would have wanted to stop this guy shouting, get out. How do, they, how do you just shut your business because somebody tells you to stop having business, you know? The temple police would have seen this as their responsibility to tackle Jesus and probably tie him with his own little rope and lead him out. But it was as if no one was able to do anything about it except for obey. Do you remember that time where they came to arrest Jesus and then he just walks through them and he just walks away? And he just disappears. I mean, here are all these strong men coming to grab one individual. I mean, it would take one burly guy to just hold Jesus, right? And here are all these guys coming to grab Jesus. And he goes, ah, it's not my time. See you guys later. And he walks away. And they're just standing there without the ability to do anything. And this is the reverse. It was the very same thing. They couldn't do anything but just obey him. Let him do what he's doing. As his mother said, whatever he says, do it. What authority he started his ministry with. This was a preview of the power that Jesus has to judge. Let me say that again. This was a preview of Jesus' power to judge. Nobody, nobody can do anything about the way he chooses to judge. I don't care how much Bill Gates has, Bill's going to do, he's going to not be able to do anything. When Jesus comes to judge, Jesus judges. Doesn't matter who it is. He is the judge and everybody, everybody will bow a knee to his judgment. Nobody can say anything or do anything about it. So Jesus will, Jesus will be displaying this same divine force of judgment on a global and universal scale at his second coming. In John 2, verse 17, it says, His disciples at this time, when they saw him do this, remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. You know, I just want to throw something in here that I think is pretty helpful. God is all the while at work. You go, Oh, really? Yes, he is. I didn't see anything. Yes, he's all the while at work in you and in your family. In us as a people, in the church at large, in our nation and in the world. God is all the while at work. You go, but I'm not seeing anything. Well, think about it. When Jesus did his, performed his first miracle, um, he, didn't actually, he didn't actually have a moment where, this miracle, where we know about this miracle taking place. He just said, fill, fill these purifying jars with water. And so they did. He says, now serve it. They served it. And it was the best wine ever. Right? He didn't say, all right, stand back, everybody. Wine! Wine! He did, there was no big dramatic moment. It was just, it ha, he, wa, 
he's all the while at work. All the while at work. Nowhere do you see, you know, him calling fire from heaven or causing the, the earth to shake. I mean, nowhere do you see God actually doing that in order to perform a miracle. Miracles are happening all the time. I mean, look, you're still alive. <laughs> right? Neither do we see anything here except for out. We didn't see him do anything kind of like spooky. Right? The disciples just saw what was going on. They were shocked, but suddenly they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. John 2 verse 17. Zeal for your house will consume me. These disciples knew the Old Testament and they realized why Jesus was acting passionately over this issue. Let's read that in the Old Testament. David wrote it. This is a messianic psalm. Psalm 69 verse 9. It says, For zeal for your house consumes me, and watch this, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. How many of you have ever had a, a second-degree offense? It's like a parent knows what this feels like. Well, let me say this. Let me, let me rather take it into the, uh, into the children's context. A brother and a sister will argue and argue and argue and argue. I can't stand you. I can't stand you. You're like this. You're like that. You know, like, like okay, wait a minute. Wait, go to school and let somebody pick on that little sister and watch that brother go, wait, wait a minute. Hey, you don't step back, back off, you know, like suddenly he turns into a lion. Why? Because, uh, you know, the, the insult that fell on her, the, somebody insulted her, but it really fell on him. The same thing is true for a husband and wife. The same thing, and this is so true for, par- for children and parents. I mean, children will torture their parents. I don't know, nine months before they even get here. <laughs> right? <laughs> And then one day somebody says something about my mama. Oh, my gosh. You know, like, <laughs> you said something about my mom? <laughs> you know. uh, the, whatever insult came fell on you, right? It's like secondary. Like oftentimes, and this is what I encourage people to do, so watch out. Don't get offended for somebody else too quickly because the person that offended them, they're going to kiss and make up. And now you have two people you're offended at. <laughs> and they said nothing to you. They argued. I got offended for what that one said. And then they kissed and made up. They said nothing about it. And I'm like, hey, I'm still angry and offended. And now I feel rejected on top of that. <laughs> but here's Jesus dealing with the exact same thing. In Psalms it says, For the zeal of your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you, Father. It falls on me. It falls on me when... How many of you get angry when you see somebody trivialize God out in the world? You turn on the news, you see somebody judging God for being unjust, immoral, outdated. (laughs) Oh, makes you angry, doesn't it? This is what happened to Jesus. He was saying, I'm insulted when my father's house is insulted. Don't talk, about, don't talk about the church like that. I burn with discontent, Jesus says, when I see my father dishonored. 
somebody dishonors God, Jesus flares up. I burn with discontent when I see them dishonor my father. He is saying that I'm infuriated when I see my father disrespected. And the more you grow in the Lord and the more you grow in the Lord, <laughs> the more it becomes true for you. That's why I don't like the whole buddy Jesus or God is dope t-shirts. or don't like that. What was that other one, Andre? Jesus is my homeboy. God is my DJ. You know, seriously. That's, that's <laughs> now, outside of the church, it is what it is. Inside of the church, not so much. I'm consumed with passion, Jesus says, for my Father's house. Now, to bring it home to us, how does this event that Jesus, you know, cleansed the temple through relate to you and I? Well, you've got to realize that the way Jesus felt about the temple in His first year of ministry, second year, and His third year of ministry, when He cleansed the temple, the same way He feels about the temple back then, He feels about the temple today, which is who? You and I. Collectively speaking, we are the temple of God. The Holy Ghost is housed within us collectively. In 1 Peter 4 verse 17, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. In Ephesians, it says that you are together the house of God. And here he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So you might ask, how does this judgment begin in the house of God? You see, judgment has to start here. But it's a different judgment. It is a cleansing judgment, but it's a different judgment than the one when He comes back to judge the whole world. Judgment starts here, sanctifying us, and it ends with destroying them. And no one can do anything about it. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. So what does this look like in our context, especially right here at Christ Nation? I want to show you how throughout Scriptures it harmonizes with the judgment of God taking place in the body of Christ at first. Now I want to mention this, that church discipline is a major subject throughout Scriptures. Well, nobody practices it anymore, especially not here in the West and the United States, because church hopping is a bigger deal than church discipline. <laughs> but church discipline is a way of Jesus cleansing the church by use of the body of the church, cleansing herself. But I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 through 32. It says this, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner in an unworthy manner, will be guilty, will be guilty of what? Of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to take the cup and the bread in an unworthy manner? It means to come to the table of communion in an unworthy manner when you are celebrating the death of Jesus Christ For the sake of your sins, you 
celebrating what happened there, Jesus, His body was broken and His blood was spilled, and you receive that knowing that this is what He needed to pay in order to allow the wrath of God against your sin to be, um, to be swallowed up, knowing that this is what you are doing, yet holding on to the very same sin. You're holding on to the very, you live in that sin, you choose it, you practice it, you don't care to fight against it. There's no need for sanctification in your life, but you receive communion. He says, when you do that, you're sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Jesus, keep, you know, thanks for dying, paying for every one of the sins I'm planning on committing tomorrow. Jesus paid for them all. This is receiving the bread and the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Verse 28, he carries on and says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Examine yourselves. Assess yourselves. Judge yourself. Like when you examine something, you, you're assessing it. When you're assessing it, you're actually judging it, right? So he says, Everyone judge yourselves, examine yourselves before you eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. They eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak. Many among you are sick. Just because there's never repentance anywhere. Nobody teaches it. Nobody believes in it. Nobody practices. But here he says, that is why many among you are sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep early. So that means die young or die because they drink from the cup and eat from his body in an unworthy manner. But if you were more discerning with regard to yourselves, if you discern yourselves more, you, you assess yourselves better and more often and more regularly and you judge yourself whether you see... Are you living for God or not? And if you're not, you make those changes every single time we receive communion. We would not come under such judgment. Here he says it. If you judge yourself, you will not come under such judgment. What judgment is he talking about? He just mentioned it. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and some of you have died. Okay, he says, but if you judge yourself... You wouldn't come under such judgment. Now, I know this is a big mind shift for many people because they've been told differently about God. The only problem is, I don't know what you want to do with these verses. Okay, so again, it says, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Verse 30, That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have already died But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such a judgment. Who's the judge? Satan? Who judges us? Satan or Jesus? God, yeah. If you would assist yourself during communion or in life generally, and you would practice repentance, which is a gift from God, not a work of the flesh... 
you would not come under these judgments of God. And what are they? It says it right there. Verse 32, Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, talking about these judgments, <laughs> we are being disciplined. All right, so there you go. Here he just, committed, he just connected it. He just clarified what he's talking about. He says, Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. In other words, judge yourself so you won't be judged in this way. And if you still won't be learnt, if you, if you still won't be teachable, excuse me, if you still won't receive God's discipline, then there's problems. Then there's problems. Somebody who cannot receive discipline of the Lord there's a problem there as far as their salvation is concerned. He says, because at the end, they'll be judged with the world. Okay, so I don't mean this for this to be too heavy, but I don't mean for this to be any lighter than what it is. <laughs> I mean, it's there, right? And so I was going to tell a joke in the beginning and a joke at the end, but then I thought, nah, you know, I'll leave that up to somebody else. I'll just show you what the Word is saying. I want us to read that again because I think this is so important since it's such a massive mind shift for so many people. 1 Corinthians. Oh, it's in the New Testament. Chapter 11, verse 27 and 32. It says, So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. It is possible to sin against Christ even during communion. How so? Everyone, who ought, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment to themselves. What is this judgment? Here it comes, verse 30. This is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's because of the judgment of God. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves... Stop looking at everybody else. Start thinking about self. Like, how about me and the Word of God? Paul says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And if not, here's a good opportunity to change things. He says, but if you were more discerning with regards to yourselves, then we would not come under such judgment that wouldn't be part of our lives. Verse 32, nevertheless, in other words, weakness, sickness, and early death wouldn't be part of our lives. But verse 32, nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord. Again, there he confirms who the judge is. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord. I remember just there was a time that maybe that's still here. I don't know. People might just not be saying anything, but... It was a time when people would say, if it's not good, it's not God. If it's not good, it's not God. But that is true. If it's not good, it's not God. But if it's not God's definition of good, it's no longer good either. It's God who defines what is good. And if it's good, if it's God's definition of good, it is God, always, yes. But if it's my good, my definition of it, my experience of it, and then I slap on, therefore it's God, well, then we could just well serve any, any God you want to make up in your imagination. You can just serve any God because what's good for you might not be good for me. Therefore, whom you say is God might not be God for me. Like, it might be good for you to take my $10 out of my pocket 
without my permission. That might be good. Therefore, you might say it's God. But I'm like, hey, that's not my God because that wasn't good to me. <laughs> you know, the, so we, we have to go to the Scriptures in order to find what it means. Good. Good is always, to God, eternal. What is the eternal good? It might be that I had to cut my hand off. If pornography, which has never been a problem of mine, but if it was a problem of mine, you know, cut that thing off. Throw that computer away. That's what I meant. <laughs> Throw that computer away, Andre. I mean, he's laughing. That's what I'm saying. He's laughing at my joke. Uh, so, so sometimes what we have to do is, uh, uh, you know, we have to go without something. People today, you know, like, are like, oh, my gosh, I wouldn't be able to go without that. Well, if it's a problem, get rid of it. If it's stopping you from serving God, it's not from God. If it is what stops you from serving God, then it's the will of God for you to no longer have it. Right? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then lose his soul in the meantime? What did he gain? Nothing. So sometimes we, we have to learn to make that hard decision and go, well, that's, that's going to be gone from now on until something changes here where I can have that without taking God out of his position of first priority. So we have to judge ourselves. And he says every time you receive communion, this is what you have to do, discern. With regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Verse 32, nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, when we are judged in this way by the Lord. No, that wasn't good, so therefore it's not God. Oh. Hmm. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined. Remember, he says, those whom he loves, he disciplines. We are being disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. In other words, if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. Not be judged. There's a difference between the word judge and condemned. There's a difference between the word judged and condemned. In this context, he says it very clearly, God disciplines us. That's His judgment. God disciplines us. That's His judgment on us. But... Us, who are being disciplined by God. Some of us are being disciplined by God right now. You're wondering, how did Satan bring this hardship on me? How do you know it was Satan? How do you know? Because a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That verse is actually talking about salvation, by the way. Not about you losing the bonus you were expecting to have. He didn't come... Satan... It, by the way, and that's, <laughs> that's talking about, go read it, the false teacher, okay? The thief is the false teacher. It's not Satan. Just go read it. You'll find it yourself. It's very, it's very clearly right there. So nevertheless, we are judged in this way by the Lord. And when we judge ourselves, when we assess ourselves, when we measure ourselves according to Scripture, and we realize it's time to change, it's time to turn, and we do it. We won't be judged by God. There's no judgment. But even so, even if there is a judgment that you are currently experiencing, a disciplining, let me call it that, because people, that falls easier on the ears, a disciplining of the Father, even so, 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? I don't mind receiving discipline as long as I'm never condemned. <laughs> right? Stop treating God like He's a marshmallow that cannot treat you like He's your child. Like you're His child, excuse me. He disciplines His children, okay? <laughs> Be glad that you're being disciplined because that's proof of the fact that you're one of His children. And even so, you're not condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't say there's no discipline. It says no, there's no condemnation. Paul then says further that nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined. All right. This is how judgment comes to the house of the Lord. Outside of church discipline, of course, that's when somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know, um, I want to come to you in private and let you know that I believe that you are breaking these verses. That's done in private. And if somebody won't listen, they bring somebody else with them. And if they don't want to listen, they bring another person with them. And if that person remains in their sin, then they need to come to the church body and the church body needs to give them a final warning if they refuse and if they hold on to their sin. The Bible says that the church needs to put them out so that hopefully, hopefully they will be sobered up and come to their senses. This is the judgment that comes to the church, and judgment must come to the house of the Lord first. That's what it says. So I wanted to out outline for you what the judgment looks like that comes to the house of God because that is what Jesus did when He walked into the temple and made His whip. He was saying, okay, judgment comes here first. This is where He didn't start the marketplace in the city. He started in the marketplace in the church, in the temple, right? And He came to cleanse His bride, to leave her without spot nor wrinkle. It is important for us to live with a clear conscience before God. It is important for us to live with a clear conscience before God. Let's pray. Lord, today we stand before your word.